can be found on page 1207 in the Pew Bibles. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and the branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Thanks Thanks very much, Georgie. Glad your voice held out for that. And it reminds me to say thank you to all the TNGers for their input in the service today, and to Monica Miles and Josh and others that are involved, other leaders, for uh, helping them with that. But it's, it's really nice, month by month, to have the TNG service as a highlight for me, and I think for a number of us here. So thank you for that. It's a complicated reading, isn't it? We better pray before we look into it in uh, more detail. So let's pray together. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that what seems difficult to unravel, um, you would make clear for us. Just help us to see our way through, or at least the main route through uh, these verses of the Bible, we pray. And as we do that, we pray that we would hear not just interesting ideas, but your voice. And we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Try and that simplified. If I had to choose just a few words from that reading, it would be um, the second sentence of verse 26. So getting down to the bottom of that uh, column on the right there on page 1207, because that flags up for us um, the, the unique significance of Jesus Christ's death. Let me read the, the bit I'm referring to. But he has appeared once for all 
at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a very striking comment on how absolutely central to history, to human history, the writer thinks Jesus Christ's sacrifice is. So you see the way he locates it in the passage of time. It happened, he says, at the end of the age, the culmination of the ages, as if it was the finale in a big orchestral piece. Everything's building up to this. Jesus' death was part of the climactic wrap-up of human history. It's really, really hugely significant and important. I know unique is a word that gets overworked. Everything's unique and therefore nothing's unique. But I'm saying this is unique, okay? You're allowed to use the word when we talk about this sort of thing. It's part of the wrap-up of human history. It's a view of history which we find pretty hard to get our heads around, especially when, by our reckoning, if you think about it, it seems like a long time has passed since the culmination deal was done, since the words that we're reading tonight were originally written. How can Jesus' death be the end when the end hasn't yet come? But when we talk like that, actually we're showing that we think of ourselves as the centre of history. That's the problem, think of ourselves as the centre of everything. Apparently when the, uh, the sinking of the Titanic was being reported around the world, in one Scottish newspaper, the headline simply said, Glasgow man lost at sea. I don't think that's a, a sort of Scottish trait particularly. I'm not trying to be down on them. Uh, but interesting how just the tragic loss of hundreds of lives from many nations got obscured by the comparatively minor point, comparatively, that one victim happened to be a local. And that's an example of how we all tend to assess events in the world from our perspective. So everything gets viewed through the lens of me-importance, a massively self-referencing like that. Um, That shows up in the questions of those who aren't in church. They might say something like this, why doesn't God show himself to me? Uh, Why can't he make a grand entrance into our world and end all the speculation? Which fails to acknowledge that, of course, he has made a grand entrance into our world. It just didn't happen to be in our century. Someone else got the front row seats and we don't like that very much. Uh, My hunch is that even if Christians don't use that language exactly, the thought isn't far from us. Uh, And in many ways that will explain our spiritual drifting, it might explain some of the questions we ask. Why can't God prove that he loves me? Well, he did, 2,000 years ago. And if we could only accept that we're not the centre of human history, we would actually be happy with that. Jesus Christ is unique, and his death is unique, and events which are unique are, by definition, unrepeatable. So, of course, he doesn't do a rerun for us today. But his love for us is not in doubt. Now, for the original readers of this letter, Hebrews, the issue was similar. I think they were affected, we've seen this a lot of times, by spiritual drift, but in a slightly different way. They were tempted to drift back to the Old Testament religion, which they'd grown up with. And the writer's argument is that that's a nonsense, uh, because... All the Old Testament sacrifices they loved were looking ahead to Jesus' death in exactly the same way that we must now look 
back to what happened when he died for us. In other words, the cross is the center point of human history, the culmination of the ages. Um, Before the cross, people were looking forward to it, and afterwards, we look back to it. And those are really the two themes that we're going to consider as we look at the passage. To begin with, we'll consider how, before Jesus came, the cross was anticipated all through the years, uh, from the start of chapter 8, actually. Um, if you've been here week by week, you'll have seen this already. The writer's been arguing that the Old Testament way of approaching God, which he calls the Old Covenant, or First Covenant, has been superseded because all it was looking up to has come along. There's a new covenant now, and chapter 9, verse 15 acts as a bridge into our passage. Let me read it again. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he's died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Somebody wants to try to encourage me to find a word or phrase, another way of saying it, for this idea of covenant. And the best that we could come up with in conversation was the phrase Special relationship. Because down the years, through the Old Testament and beyond, the God of heaven and earth, amazing this is, he's always wanted to enter into a special relationship with his people. He binds himself to a friendship with them. And our passage tonight is clear that a death is always essential for that relationship to be secure. Uh, I'll carry on. Verse 16. In the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And the slightly tricky thing there is that the word he uses for covenant in verse 15, just a verse above that little bit I just read, and the word for will in verses 16 and 17 are actually the same word. In fact, um, if you've got really good eyesight, there's a footnote down the bottom that alerts you to that. If you look down to the small letter D, it says that will is the same Greek word as covenant. So it's as if he's saying something like this. We all know that when someone makes a will, that is a covenant. Well, the special relationship God makes with his people is a covenant, just like a will covenant. Um, a death is necessary before anyone would inherit. I know that um, when a wealthy person is nearing death, the vulture starts circling a little bit early. But basically, until a death happens, no one is getting anything. Now, the instant he says that, it raises a question. What about those who lived in the Old Testament times before Christ died? Could they not be beneficiaries of God's will? Because no death had happened at that point. And maybe you've worried sometimes that the Old Testament believers would miss out on forgiveness because they came before the death of Jesus. Well, he certainly seems to say here in verse 17 that a will is never in force as long as the one who made it is alive. So does that mean that David and Moses and all the greats of the Old Testament missed out? Well, not according to the next chunk. Let me read verses 18 to 22 again. I'm just hoping that if we get the whole passage read again, Um, it will sink in bit by bit what is arguing. Verse 18, this is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. There had to be a death. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves 
together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll on all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So blood had to be shed under the old covenant. The inheritance couldn't be enjoyed without a death. And if you think about it, with all the sacrifices, actually there were plenty of deaths, because without the shedding of blood, he's saying, there is no forgiveness. But all those deaths, the various animals in that man-made sanctuary during the Old Testament, were only pointers to Christ's offering. And there are heavenly dimensions to his death. If we read on in 23 and 24, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ didn't enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So it's complicated, isn't it? I know. Keep going. What he's saying is that what had happened for years in the temple is only a picture of what happens now in God's presence in heaven. Having died once for all, Jesus now represents us in person before his father. There was a moment um, early in my married life, I was still in Cambridge at the time, when our first dog, Jesse, was still a little puppy. And um, Susu, my wife, had to be away for a few days in the States, and she was missing Jesse. And when we spoke on the phone, um, I was requested to, to put the receiver to Jesse's ear and uh, Susu could have a few words with her. You could see the puppy trying to work out how Susu could possibly be in the phone. It's too small. How could she be in there? How can it possibly contain her? Well, that ought to be our conclusion about the earthly tabernacle. It meant so much to people from a Jewish background. It's too small. How can it possibly contain God? And that's his point. It was only ever a symbol of how a relationship with God could be enjoyed. The real focus of the relationship was always heaven itself, where Jesus would one day go ahead of them so that one day later they could go there themselves. But even then, he's saying all along, a death had to occur. So even the first covenant wasn't inaugurated without blood. In Old Testament, Christ hadn't died, but all the sacrifices, every drop of blood was pointing forward to a day when a death would occur that would indeed achieve forgiveness once for all. And if a believer put their faith not in animals, of course you didn't put your faith in that, but in the grace of God, they could have a foretaste of that experience in advance. His death was great enough to release the inheritance backwards 2,000 years or more to them. And what happened then, of course, is great enough to benefit us 2,000 years later as well. Let's see how he puts that in verses 25 and 26. 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. 
But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And the key point there, I think we'll see this again as we go on through the next few chapters. Unlike all those repeated sacrifices in the Old Testament, this sacrifice is complete. Jesus doesn't need to offer himself again and again. But that's not because sin is unimportant and because a blood sacrifice is unnecessary. Absolutely not. A death had still been necessary. So that um, truth in verse 22, which you might have thought I'd skipped over, still applies. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. applies to us as much as it did to them. There's a technical term. Sometimes we have to do language studies and introduce the technical language. A technical term for what this is teaching is uh, propitiation, where the life of an innocent substitute is given up to appease God's righteous anger against our sin. That's what we mean by propitiation. I think we're probably fairly familiar with the idea of propitiation. There's that silly story about a man who came into a florist, a flower shop, He had a worried look on his face and he was walking up and down looking at the selection of flowers, picking up a bunch here and then putting them back down again, going for another one. And in the end, the assistant felt that they ought to offer a bit of help. So they coughed and spoke up. Um, What exactly did you do? Not offering anything particularly, but trying to get to the bottom of it all. When, When a human relationship is marked up and somebody is offended and needed propitiation. We we use that idea of an offering being made to remove wrath. We're familiar with that. Now, when God is offended by our sin, it's always perfectly justified. He's got every right to call the shots in our relationship. And if we reject our creator, the author of life, then it, it must follow. Our sin carries the death penalty. But the right offering can pay for sin. God can be propitiated. And it took the death of Jesus in exchange for our death. Nothing less would do. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. I don't know if um, you find the idea of propitiation difficult to take. A lot of people will tell us it's antiquated and offensive. Um, But it is there in the Bible again and again. The only alternative, it seems to me, is for us to take a scissor-paste approach to the Bible and just cut out the ideas which we don't like. Actually, what we'll tend to do if we try that is we just cut out the ideas which don't flatter our 21st century ideas about God. There was a famous theologian once who described that view of Christianity like this. He said, it teaches that a God without wrath brought people without sin to a kingdom without judgment, through a Christ without a cross. I'm taking all sorts of bits out of the message of the Bible. And it reduces the message of Christianity to a vague feel-good factor, which just quietly massages our egos and lulls people imperceptibly to to, to sleep. And all the while... Actually, if the Bible is right, while we're rocking people quietly to sleep by taking bits out of the Bible that people might find difficult, 
All the while, actually, they're in danger because the Bible would say they need forgiveness. And, of course, the other spin-off is they're missing out on a secure covenant that could be theirs. So what Hebrews is saying, I know it's complicated, I know it's hot in here, uh, it's saying that sin's got to be dealt with, but wonderfully, sin has been dealt with. That sentence I started with, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, it's just worth me saying we've got communion in a moment. It means that our communion this evening isn't a sacrifice. Sometimes people would say it is. Uh, properly understood, this table here isn't an altar because there are no new sacrifices being offered on this table. Basically, Jesus' main work is done. He appeared once, 2,000 years ago, to do the vital work of doing away with sin. Then, just a little footnote, last two verses, a second appearing is mentioned. So you see it there, verses 27 and 28, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. He will appear again. Here's the point. It won't be to achieve anything which wasn't in principle achieved when he appeared 2,000 years ago. That was the culmination, the decisive moment in history. And Jesus' return is simply the inevitable conclusion. There was a time when Gary Kasparov was playing another grandmaster in chess. And it seemed, if you were watching, it seemed like it was just the middle of the game. And then the challenger made a move. And Kasparov just lay his king over on his side. So to everyone's amazement, he just resigned. And when he was asked at the press conference... Afterwards, why he'd done it, Kasparov said that his opponent's preceding move had made his defeat inevitable. And by tracking the game, whatever it would be, 22 moves ahead or something like that, he could see checkmate was coming. It was inevitable. Now, if Jesus' death dealt with sin and brought forgiveness for many people, then ultimately Jesus' death is going to deal with sin's consequences as well. So the decisive move in the history of the world has been made. It's only a matter of time before the salvation which Jesus' death has already achieved is going to be unveiled when he comes back. So he'll appear again, but it won't be to do a repeat performance of the work of his first coming. That job is done. He's taken away sin. For many people. And not once in all these 2,000 years since he died on the cross has he ever been told, I'm oh, sorry, Jesus, but what you did at the cross isn't quite enough to secure forgiveness for that person, for the bad thing you did, or whoever. Oh, I'm afraid you'll need to leave heaven all over again, Jesus. Live on earth again, suffer a bit more for them. Not once has that happened. All believers can know that they are already accepted and are going to remain so at the very highest level with God himself. The covenant or special relationship is not in any doubt. 
And that's a good thing if you read 27 carefully. This is the verse we've got as the verse of the month. It's quite a sobering verse, isn't it? There's a dark note in it. People are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's the death penalty ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God. The common lot of all human beings. When they die, it's not simply a natural process. It is our God-ordained destiny. It means that the timing of any death is not an accident. Uh, We're not simply the victim of the disease that takes us away. The the clarity of the language here seems to me is really helpful, and we're usually so reluctant to speak clearly. Human beings are destined to die once. And we need that clarity. There's no reincarnation beyond the grave, no second chances after death, if these words are true. We need to bear it in mind when we see people who are near death, because when death comes, this verse says it will actually be too late to help people get ready for eternity. In fact, it's usually too late somewhat before death, if we're honest, given the way our faculties decline in our last days. And the urgency lies, does it not, in what follows death. Humans are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So if I'm not trusting in Jesus to take my sins away then the teaching of the Bible is that I will bear my sins myself after death. But if I am trusting Jesus, I'm safe. God's covenant guarantees it. And what Jesus achieved 2,000 years ago can bring security, can settle the future, bring me confidence now. That's the encouragement from these verses, seems to me for us, as we look back in a way all the Old Testament believers were looking forward, whatever the present circumstances that trouble us, and I don't know what they might be in your life at the moment, uh, sickness, bereavement, struggles in your marriage, um, workplace struggles, a big change in your life circumstances, the end of your working days, or whatever it might be. There are, there's no sure way to face all those sorts of difficulties than in this special relationship with God which Jesus makes possible. Just because it happened so long ago, don't doubt that it can benefit you now and for eternity. And if we believe that, we've got good news for our friends and we've got good news for ourselves as well. Let's pause for a moment and just uh, ponder how we'll respond to that. And then I'll lead us in a communion prayer in a moment. He has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. We thank you, Heavenly Father, how privileged we are to be able to look back 
in history on Jesus' death when it was just something that uh, was promised for so many people before he came. We've got the clear light and weight of history uh, showing us how much it matters to you to pay for our sins so that we can know we're loved and accepted by you. And we pray that even if it seems like a long, long time ago, the, the power and wonder of that death for us would warm our hearts and give us confidence for today and for the future. We pray we would really know that you love us and could not love us more than you do since Christ has died for us. And help that to be the force of our time at communion tonight, we pray, Heavenly Father, just as a a foretaste of that great meal in heaven one day when Christ returns. In your tender mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to rescue us. He made there a full and perfect sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He commands us today to share bread and wine in memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear our prayer, merciful Father, that we who receive this bread and wine to remember his death and suffering may be partakers of his body and blood. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this when you drink it, in remembrance of me. Amen. So we'll take bread and wine now. I'll bring some bread and some wine a little after that to you in the pews. And I invite you to say some appropriate words as you pass them to uh, the person next to you. It may be that some people don't want to take communion. You may feel that's got to wait until you're confirmed. Actually, if you know and love the Lord Jesus and are ready for it, we don't see any barriers to you taking communion, but no pressure. If you don't want to take it, just pass it on to the person next to you. That's absolutely fine.